The following is a special sponsored edition of the Big Three Bio Podcast. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Big Three Bio Podcast. When the biotech industry gathers in San Francisco for the annual J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference Week in January, people will be closely watching deal-making activity, who potential acquirers may be, and what targets they may hope to pick off in the year ahead. We spoke to Chris Whirling, partner with the law firm McDermott, Will & Emery, about the environment for life sciences deal-making, who has the upper hand at the negotiating table these days, and what smaller companies should do to give themselves leverage. Chris, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Daniel, for having me. We're going to talk about the upcoming J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference Week, the evolving environment for life science dealmaking, and how biotech executives can make the most of their time during this hectic week. Let's start with the environment today. What kind of a year was it for life science dealmaking? Uh, well, 2017 was a very interesting year for life science deal-making. Um, there was a bit of an absence of the so-called mega-deals, mega-split-ups that we've seen in a few recent years. But in, despite a lot of chatter about possible mega-deals, possible possible split-ups, and when I talk about split-ups, I'm talking about kind of the possible split of Pfizer into three companies, uh, possible other divestitures from other big companies. Despite a lot of chatter about those not and that not happening, there was a lot of kind of more middle market deal-making this year, companies building up pipelines uh, in, in biotech, particularly we had continued interest in cancer through the year, um, and continued interest in uh, neuro uh, uh, products, uh, some interest in medical device, some medical device acquisitions this year as well. But all those were kind of squarely middle market, a lot of transactions that were in the 500 million to billion and a half or two billion range, um, as opposed to some of the mega deals we kind of thought we would see. So for biotech executives, it was a uh, really kind of productive year for building the pipeline and kind of growing in those middle market tack on acquisitions as opposed to kind of a, a mega deal year in my mind. Oh, there's been much anticipation about the tax bill, which just won approval. I, I think many people were expecting a bigger year on the M&A front in 2017. Were companies waiting on the sidelines to see what happened with the legislation? Uh, no, that's a, that's a big maybe for me. Um, the tax legislation does have some components that are fantastic for, for large biotechs and, and large pharmas. Uh, First and foremost, we've got the capability of them to bring some cash back into the U.S. Pharma and biotech is industry number one for having cash that gets, quote-unquote, trapped overseas. Because pharma and biotechs are so global, 
in their operations. They uh, and they have this income that does get kind of trapped overseas. Now, most of them have are very sophisticated, have ways to bring back that cash or use it. I personally didn't see that hold up deal making at all. However, it may have had an impact on just pricing and. If a pharma company couldn't get access to some cash that it needed to use for an acquisition, it may have come in a little bit lower on a price for a deal, and therefore a deal might not have gotten done. So the tax bill's new changes have will, will hopefully break through that kind of barrier, enable some pharmas to access that, that, that cash that's overseas and use it to pay a bigger price for an M&A target that they might be taking a look at. Um, so and that's kind of big change, number one, in my mind that affects the tax bill and deal-making. The, in, in the tax bill, also just the ongoing lower rates applicable to pharmas and biotechs, obviously that's great news for them. And may not have as big of an impact on specific deal-making um, in the kind of near term, but will definitely uh, free up cash for other developments and things like that other than paying the U.S. federal government. Big companies need to build their pipelines. That's a, a theme that doesn't seem to go away. Are there particular areas right now where you're expecting a lot of activity in 2018? Any themes you'd expect to emerge? Well, I think that 2018 is going to be a continued interest in cancer therapeutics, really. Um, I was just with some colleagues and, uh, and uh, kind of for lack of a better term, a lobbyist or two, and I was asking them about, uh, you know, possible moves by uh, U.S. Congress uh, related to drug pricing. And with some of the examples of being some of these cancer therapeutics are getting pretty pricey. And will Medicare continue to pay for that? The kind of the, the tea leaf reading coming out of D.C. is that there's really not going to be any major action on drug, drug pricing in 2018 in the lead up to the midterm elections in particular. And uh, as a result, that wouldn't dampen the continued interest in cancer. There's just so much innovation going on in cancer um, and so many uh, great things happening that the larger companies all want a piece of the action. So I, you know, it's not a great, fun new trend <laughs> that I'm predicting, but I, I really think this, we're going to see continued interest in cancer therapeutics. And there's some large pharmas, large biotechs, that either are not in cancer therapeutics at all or have just a toe dipped here or there, I think those that aren't in it are going to see pressure from Wall Street to get involved um, in, the, in that market or if they're there in a small way to really enhance and grow the, their presence in cancer, uh, cancer drugs. There's a general impression today that this is a seller's market. Would you say that's so? Who has the upper hand at the negotiating table these days? Yeah, I, I, it, it's it's without a doubt a seller's market. Um, that really is indicated by some of the prices that we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months. It's definitely a seller's market um, from pricing and from a terms perspective. 
Um, so what do I mean by terms? I mean there that we're seeing buyers agree to uh, kind of lighter indemnification packages. We're starting to see buyers use uh, a tool called representation and warranty insurance. Um, the result of those those that rep and warranty insurance and the result of indemnification packages loosening up means that a seller is not only are they getting a good price in today's market, but they are also able to walk away without as much money tied up for potential post-closing claims in the transaction. Um, we're also continuing to see the use of some contingent payments. Um, yeah, they are also known as bio bucks, you know, where you see a transaction announced where there's 200 million in upfront, uh, consideration and 800 million in earnouts for contingent consideration. We're continuing to see those used, but I've seen a few transactions over the year where, uh, the, the terms for payment of that contingent consideration are loosening up. So, uh, we're, it just makes it easier for the seller to get paid that possible $800 million in my example. Um, so th th those are the things aside from pricing that lead me to say that it is uh, still definitely a seller's market and uh, that's manifesting itself beneficially for sellers. And are you thinking of this only in terms of M&A, but also in terms of a licensing and alliance deals? Yeah. Yeah, definitely licensing and alliance deals too. Um, I mean, the drug companies are uh, really continue to use alliances to develop. As much as there's been, has been a lot of talk about kind of building the pipeline and the internal pipeline and building lab uh, capabilities, research capabilities internally, they're, they're still looking to licenses and collaborations to bring in that technology. Um, they're also looking, we're also seeing drug and biotech companies really look to earlier stage licensing and collaborations. So one of the things that's interesting in the licensing and collaboration market for me is that it's, um, it's a bit of a seller's market in the very early stage research uh, field right now. And we're seeing that come through in some creative deals that pharmas and biotechs are doing directly with research labs uh, and directly with kind of early stage researchers and their, their affiliated institutions. So who the pharma companies are really trying to support that research, trying to get in, get their foot in the door early with some of this ground breaking step, particularly related to kind of gene editing, gene therapy, cancer therapeutics again, and some of the interesting things going on in neuro. And are you just seeing fatter milestone payments or are you seeing payments shifting to, to upfront payments? Um, we're seeing milestone payments somewhat stay around the same. I, I wouldn't say that I'm seeing them get a lot fatter, uh, but back to the theme I mentioned earlier, we're seeing some of the terms on milestone payments loosen up a bit. Um, and so by that, I mean really that both sides, sellers and buyers have gotten, uh, you know, have been pulled through the litigation ringer on post-closing payments and have um, experienced 
uh, you know, fights over a milestone payment. And so in this seller's market, we're seeing some of those terms just loosen up and become a little more clear, easier to reach for the sellers so that there's not as much uh, fighting about it. And that's great for sellers because um, many times when we're, when I say a term sheet, we're just starting on a transaction that's got that, those big payments following a closing. I, you know, I frequently have to say to our seller clients, hey, we're going to do our best to try to craft in language to get this, but you shouldn't really do the deal based on thinking you're going to get those payments. Now that's shifting a little bit, and some of those payments are, in my mind, becoming a little more attainable, and there's greater clarity, and people are building in some of those lessons learned from from the litigation and so forth. And we're in an environment where investors seeking exits or companies seeking deals have a choice between, you know, if they're a private, have a choice between the IPO market these days and an M&A. How is that changing the conversation with a potential acquirer? But it, it's it's definitely there. Um, the um, class of seventeen IPOs, um, you know, there there were some standout successes, uh, but you know, I'd say it wasn't like the crazy days of uh, I believe that was twenty fourteen, where we saw just this kind of list, particularly in cancer again and other kind of gene therapy type drugs just lining up. Um, but some of them are doing fairly well. I'd say I, last time I looked at the data on balance, um, on balance, the majority of those that have IPO this year were, were up or were in positive territory. Um, so I, you know, I think that the IPO avenue is definitely something that when we're in a conversation, with a growth stage biotech, they are um, they have that as an option, and that's always good. Um, the, their pricing, um, their pricing, and the and, and the terms that they can get from IPOs, from sorry, from um, from underwriters are is always a bit in flux. But I'll say that at least for the 2017 class of biotech IPOs. And, and those that were considering it, it was always an option throughout the year. So that, it definitely helped valuations. Um, we, I was involved in a couple processes that were so-called dual track processes where people were examining an IPO versus a sale or out license of the IP. And I'll tell you, it helps when you are, it helps, you know, the seller really drive the timeline and push hard to um, for the buyer to close the deal because they have that backup option. Well, when smaller life science companies are seeking a development partner, what advice would you give them? How should they go about determining the right fit? How can they position themselves to get full value for what they have? Well, the, the most challenging thing is finding fit with the uh, the the, the the therapeutic product and the buyer or the licensor. Um, you know, I really, it's a challenge because frequently you'll have a, I'll be representing a seller, working with a seller or an investor in a seller, and they will receive a very high price from a buyer 
who's uh, really doesn't have experience with the therapeutic area. Uh, that buyer's kind of out there fishing around to get involved. They want to start to invest in the space. And I really, despite the, the, the fact that the money may be the best there, I really caution that seller against, uh, you know, getting overly excited, particularly about back-end payments and so forth in that kind of transaction. If the buyer licensor does not have experience in the therapeutic area, with that type of compound, that type of uh, drug, it's 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 really going to be um, a little bit. You're taking a bit of a flyer there <laughs> to see whether they're going to have success in developing the product, um, and if their board and their management is going to be continued in its interest in developing the product. Uh, compare that with. A acquisition where uh, opportunity where you have the opportunity to sell to a company that's got experience in the area where they have reps in the area um, where they have uh, uh, you know market access experience in working with payers in the therapeutic area there you have just much more of a guarantee of success for the product um, I, I take for example um, Earlier this year, we were privileged to work with a company called Atsuka Pharmaceuticals, uh, which which bought our client Neurovance. Neurovance is um, developing a new ADHD product, a new neuro neuro oriented product. Atsuka had just fantastic depth of experience in the the in the neuro space and their largest product that they distributed in the US had some some really close similarities both in who kind of what kind of representatives would be selling the product what kind of payers would be paying for the product um, and most importantly just development experience with that product so for our client Neurovance it was the while the money was good it was kind of a slam dunk to have Atsuka take over the development of that product and possibly develop and, and hopefully launch it in the U.S. and in, in the future. So that, that's kind of my overall cautionary thoughts and, and words of wisdom to a, a seller in this current market for when kind of searching for a buyer. As a, a veteran of J.P. Morgan Week, what advice would you have to biotech executives looking to make the most of their time there? <laughs> it's definitely a chaotic uh, week, but I like to I like to tell myself as I'm running around San Francisco and up and down the hills that hey, think about while well, you might be tired right now, think about the fact that getting all of these meetings done. If you had to fly and travel to each individual meeting, you might be talking about 25 different flights there. So you've got to really kind of calm yourself uh, with that thought about how much work you're saving and traveling around the country. Um, that might be hard to think about at 9 p.m. when you're walking up the hill for the final time of the night, but that's really what to keep in mind. So, but um to make your my advice for making your the most of the time would be I, I think two things. One is work in advance. So the next two weeks here are critical. Um, 
advance work to set up the meetings should be ongoing right now. Um, and, and it's not too late the week before, but be pinging people and setting up those meetings in advance, trying to do it the week of or while you're at an event is is difficult and, and I'd say impossible. So that advance work to make the connection and set up the meetings is critical. I think the second thing is events. Um, there are some great events that are being put on that are ancillary to the main JP Morgan conference that you can really take advantage of, knock out a bunch of meetings at. If you are planning to attend some of those events, get those attendance lists in advance and start working on planning your meetings at the event. Um, if you do those two things, kind of use the events to your advantage and, and plan ahead, you will kind of make a little bit of sense out of the chaos of the J.P. Morgan week. And what should they expect to get done here? Is this a, a chance to get before a lot of investors and potential partners and start conversations or does serious deal making take place during that week? What what goals should companies set for themselves? Well, there's two, I think there's kind of two diverse ends of a pole. <laughs> um, for companies that are, are, are growth or early stage companies, in large part, your goal really should be to start conversations and develop that in-person relationship with a potential partner or an investor. Um, really, this is some opportunity for FaceTime, a little bit of seeing if the chemistry is right, maybe between your whole team and an investor's team. Um, that that's, that's really, for most that are in attendance, should be the primary goal. Of course, whenever I have meetings, I try to leave with a specific follow-up. And I think that growth and early stage biotechs and pharma development companies should do the same thing. Kind of set the follow up goals and, and work your plan following the conference. There is one set of, um, I end up working a lot at JP Morgan, not necessarily just at meetings to meet, uh, you know, potential clients and people that I'm working with. But we do end up almost every year saying, hey, we're working on this transaction. Everyone's going to be in San Francisco. So there is some element of specific deal making, kind of serious deal making that does happen every year at JP Morgan. For the first or second time attender, that's probably not the expectation. But hey, if you're working on a deal and you've got something that's, uh, you know, kind of getting to term sheet stage or more, hey, everyone's going to be out there. You might may as well try to find a, a private conference room, which can be difficult, and get some of that serious deal making done too. McDermott's going to be busy during that week. I know you'll be busy. Anything worth highlighting that you'll be doing for J.P. Morgan Week? Could you run through what's going on here, and how can people learn more about it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've been um, we've been present at J.P. Morgan for. For quite a few years, we're lucky that we've uh, partnered up over the years with Ernst and Young to uh, to to meet as many folks as possible when we're there. As I said, I do a lot of work in um, kind of meeting potential clients, but also some existing clients. Um, we are our biggest event of the of the week is going to be on Tuesday evening from six o'clock to nine o'clock p.m. We have uh, an awesome venue rented out called Spin. It's actually a uh, ping pong 
uh, ping pong bar. <laughs> so, but we have the whole venue, um, rented out. We're expecting almost a thousand of our clients and friends of McDermott, Will and Emery and Ernst and Young to come and attend. If you'd like to come to that reception, it will be in, it, we expect to have a lot of our investors present, our investor clients as well as quite a few of our larger pharma and growth stage pharma companies in attendance. You can check out our website at www.mwe.com uh, for uh, event information there and to register. In addition to that big party event and networking opportunity, we have two, um, we have two smaller events, which will be great uh, for if they're up your alley. Um, the uh, the first is uh, an event on Monday, January 8th at 4 o'clock at the Ritz-Carlton, which is called A Case Study on Cross-Border Investment from Asia into the U.S. Life Sciences Market. Um, this is going to be a really interesting kind of case study discussion involving McDermott lawyers and a panel of industry leaders that have done this cross-border investment from Asia into into the U.S. life sciences company. So that's at 4 p.m. on Monday, January 8th. Um, our our second um, our second other kind of specific event is at lunch on Monday, January 8th, from 11 a.m. to 1 o'clock. It's called a lunchtime conversation with digital health pioneers, and there we have a couple really critical folks in the digital health industry, which is something that digital health is not just a Silicon Valley type of thing. This is something that biotechs and pharmas are very closely involved in. And we've got two founders and a very experienced investor that'll do a short presentation followed by a, a lunch on, on Monday. So I hope to see folks out there uh, at our McDermott events and, and also around around the entire J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. And will you be wearing shoes or sneakers that week? <laughs> a mix of both. I've got, I got these great new shoes that are you know, like a, they're made by Nike, but they look like secret dress shoes. Yeah. So I, I sneak them in. <laughs> I come in them. Chris Whirling, partner with McDermott, Will & Emery. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for listening. The Big 3 Bio Podcast is brought to you by Big 3 Bio, the leading aggregator service for the top three life science hubs in the world, Boston, San Diego, and the San Francisco Bay Area. To subscribe free to Big 3 Bio daily newsletters, go to Big3Bio.com. The Big 3 Bio Podcast is produced for Big 3 Bio by the Levine Media Group. Our theme music for this podcast is provided by the Jonah Levine Collective, Appears on the album Attention Deficit.